podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Miller, and I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Dean Barnes to today's show. Dean is a superintendent of schools in Ontario, Canada, and has gained notoriety for his collection of black NHL hockey player cards. He started his collection at age eight with Opeachy brand cards and recently completed a set that includes Wayne Gretzky's rookie card. More significantly, though, Dean has collected most of the nearly 100 cards of black players who have played in the NHL, and he has taken his show on the road displaying his collection all around North America as part of the NHL Black Hockey History Tour. I used to collect baseball cards myself, but I know very little about hockey, let alone the value of collecting black player cards, so I was eager to speak with Dean about his journey and what the power of sports cards means to him. So listen in and learn from Dean about his collection, why it holds educational value, and how we all have the power to help normalize the experiences of visible minorities in sports. How are you? Hey, good. Nice good. to see you. Nice to see you. Thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on. How's your day going today? Yeah, pretty good. I'm just wrapping up holidays, getting ready to go back to, to the work world on Monday. So it's been a pretty yes. good break. Yes. Yeah. And you're a superintendent of schools? That's right. Yeah. On the Canadian model, there's a number of superintendents and there's one director. Okay. So we have, I'm one of the seven or eight academic uh-huh. superintendents and there's some on the corporate side and then there's a director of the board. I see. Okay. And what's yeah. that work like? So I have a portfolio. It's student well-being is like my system-wide responsibility. And then I supervise a couple of high schools and I know 15 elementary schools. So it's a pretty good setup. We're, we're a board with what, 65,000 students. So. Holy moly. That's, that sounds yeah. quite large. Yeah. They tend to make our boards bigger and then okay. they're just more of a leadership structure at the top. I see. Okay. There's five cities, Burlington, Oakville, Milton, Halton Hills. So that's in Milton. Yeah. yeah. And are these all suburbs of Toronto? I've never been to Canada or yeah. that part anyway. Yeah. I'm 45 minute drive from Toronto. We're bound by Lake Ontario. So there's city of Toronto and the GTA, probably like where you are, it grows out from there. Okay. So it's more Toronto, Mississauga's big city heading to the West. Mm-hmm. Then Oakville, then I live in Burlington. And then there's a more of an urban, bigger city in Hamilton that's west of me. And then you come around to Niagara Falls where there's a little less population than you hit Buffalo. I see. Okay. Okay, great. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, Dean, I really appreciate you you joining me for the show. I'm excited to talk to you about your hockey collection and you know, hockey card collection, I should say. And yeah. I, I like to always start this show by just getting to know my guests a little bit and talking about their upbringing, growing up, playing sports, watching sports. And so I know that you were a college hockey player, but... I imagine you watched hockey too. Was there a particular player or players that you admired the most? Yeah, I, hockey was a big part of my life growing up. And I, I was a Toronto Maple Leaf fan. And whether they didn't always have the greatest teams, but grew up watching Hockey Night in Canada on Saturday nights. And also there was Wednesday night games. So those were the two games you could watch. And at the time in the 70s, Daryl Sittler was the captain, number 27, and Lane McDonald. And Borea Salmi was the defenseman. So those are three players that most people from my generation, if you're a Leaf fan, liked watching. I so see. They, yeah. 
And for people like me who don't follow hockey too closely, tell me about those players. What made them special? I point getters like players that are the guys, the players who score lots of points for the team. So Daryl Sidler was played for Leafs for at least six to eight years and also played for Team Canada. So he was a top player. Landon McDonald was his winger and a star player that was really popular. And Borea Salmi was one of the first European players to come in the NHL and play. Mm-hmm. And we all grew up getting to see Borea Salmi play for a long career for at least, maybe 15 seasons. Aha. Uh-huh. And do you know what country he was from in Europe? He was from Sweden. So I don't know specifically what part of Sweden, but he's okay. from Sweden. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah. And he was one of the first. That's interesting. Because when I was growing up, I... The hockey I did follow, it seemed like there were mostly Europeans and Canadians. Yeah, I think if you look at the percentages in the early 70s, it was almost 70-80% Canadian, very few Americans. And then there's a slow trickle of Europeans started to join the NHL around the time when Salming did in the 70s. Interesting. And he was a pioneer in that way, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, one of them. Yeah. What about your experiences as a player, Dean? What did you like about hockey in particular that made it a sport that you wanted to play? My parents... Grew up, were born in Jamaica. They moved to England, then came as immigrants to Canada in the late 60s. And we lived in a home right beside elementary school. And I guess I was just fortunate. Everyone around me was quite active into sports. And we'd go and play it at the school after school all the time. And just right around the corner. So we would play road hockey. We played baseball. We played soccer. My brother was four years older than me. Often times it'd be my friends and his friends playing game of road hockey and uh, we're just pretty much doing what most Canadians did whether you're new to the country or not it was common pastime to, to play those sports so I think in the region of Canada where I grew up suburb of Toronto it, it was just a popular thing to do and along with road hockey um, ice hockey was popular so there was a skating rink arena probably about 10 minutes from my house my older sister knew how to skate I remember her taking me to skating lessons I also remember watching my brother who played semi-competitive hockey. And I wanted to be like my brother and watching everyone that was out there playing hockey. So it's just a natural thing for me to pick up. Sure, sure. It's very accessible. That's so interesting. And what was it like playing a sport at that time that the professional ranks were predominantly white? I didn't see myself as different at the time. And I didn't Mm -hmm. focus much on color. My teammates didn't treat me much differently. Canada in general was mostly white country in the 70s, the more metropolitan areas like Toronto were becoming increasingly diverse and more visible in minorities. But there was a small number of new Canadians and new families to the country. But again, it was just something naturally that we played a number of different sports. We played soccer, we played basketball, hockey was just easily accessible to me. I remember even collecting hockey cards and going to the variety store, spirit change from my dad had, buying different sports cards, but most of the time it was hockey. And then going to school, and we trade cards. And one of our favorite principals also used to have a game where we would flip cards against the wall. Watching hockey, playing road hockey, playing ice hockey. We weren't in a country area where outdoor rinks were completely accessible, but there was the rink near my house growing up. It did have an outdoor rink and an indoor rink. And I read, you know, you mentioned the hockey card collection. I want to get to that in, in a minute, but it, I'm curious about the impetus for your decision to complete the set, because as you say, you were collecting hockey cards from an early age, but I read that the pandemic and particularly the murder of George Floyd had an impact on your decision to complete your set of hockey cards. So I'm curious if you could walk the listeners through that decision. 
Yeah, again, my experience with Pocky was very positive throughout my childhood and still continue to play this game. And I know you've talked before about what people, how many people talked about what they did during the pandemic. And some people were baking bread, some people were going for walks, some people was physical fitness. Sure. One of my friends, I remember engaging conversation about him getting into the sports memorabilia. And I was reading articles again about card collecting and the value of Wayne Gretzky's card. And I remember I have a card that, that I have. It's, it's, not rated the, it's not rated mint condition, but I do have a rookie card for Wayne Gretzky. And wow. along with that, I have a 1979 OPG set, which is a set that Gretzky with his rookie card is from. So I was a little bit motivated to check eBay and complete that set. I was mm -hmm. about 150 cards. Okay. So I did take some time. It was exciting seeing some of those old cards come in. And there was a checklist for me to see how many of the 400 cards I needed. And then once I got that set done, I started to just gaze a different piece of memorabilia. And you mentioned the George Floyd and some of the social injustices that were being brought to light, not just during the pandemic, but pre and post pandemic, a lot sure. of the focus on injustice to Blacks and North America across the world. So I thought it would be something to collect and finish, start a specific collection of Black hockey players. So when I was finishing off that 7980, I know Wayne Gretzky played with Grant Fuhrer, was a popular, one of the first Black goalies and stars in NHL as a Black player. So I bought his card and I bought Tony McKenney's card and he was a other childhood idol of mine. And I just thought it'd be a neat idea to continue on that collection. And I was becoming a little bit inspired and motivated because the cards were a little bit more accessible than I thought. I did my mm -hmm. research and knowing which years I had to purchase, but it was a nice treat. Every week or so, four or five cards would come in the mail and I put them in a collection. And as the time went on, I just had a bit more of a vision of collecting every card and I knew there would be around hundred cards. So that's where the whole emphasis came from. It's very interesting. And you said that you wanted to collect cards to capture and celebrate the increasing growth of black players that you mentioned picks up in the two thousands, but what is it about this part of the project that drives you? As I said, that the changing face and population of Canada from when I played in the eighties as a kid to two thousands, Canada has continually become more and more diverse and more people of physical minority. So I, from a distance before I got into this project, I knew that I had become more familiar with some of the players younger than me that were now in the NHL. And when I did my research with the card collection, I started seeing more names like you know, Jerome McGinlas and Anson Carter. These are some of the players that played in the 2000s. So in terms of my motivation, to continue. I didn't have that when I was growing up. So I just thought it was very important to try to capture this story and enlighten people at the number of players who have played at least one NHL game. So I know it's different if you're looking at a lengthy career. There's some players who had longer careers than others. But I don't know if I said to you before we set up the show, if you knew there was 100 Black players who played in NHL, I don't know if you thought there would be that many. I was actually going to ask you that. I, I didn't really think much of it, frankly, Dean, being an American and not a hockey follower. But, but what is the response that you get when you show your card collection or talk to people about your card collection? Do pe are people surprised at that number, either that it's large or small, one way or another? It, it's a bit mixed. I, some people... We're, uh, we're not aware there's that many players because unless you are a frontline player, you know, scoring lots of goals, and it, it, it may not be as familiar to a particular uh, fan in a particular city that he had a couple of players 
who played for a particular team. Val James, I'm jumping back a bit here, but Val James received a little bit of notoriety at the same time when mm-hmm. I was doing this collection. He was the first African-American born player. In recent years, Willie O'Ree was the first player in 1958 to play for the Boston Bruins, and he became an ambassador for the league. But only recently, I think that the light was then shone on Val James, who has an interesting story. His father uh, worked in arena maintenance in Long Island, and he uh, family moved from Florida to Long Island. Then he, Val James moved to Quebec and played in the Quebec Junior Hockey League and even got drafted in NHL. Just a remarkable story. He didn't really actually start playing hockey until he was 13 years old. Wow. So the response for many, I think if you fast forward to current times, we know that there's 10% of the population, if not more, probably 15% African-Americans in the United States. So one would think when you compare the other sports, there should be more players right now. So that's the other end of the argument that there, there should have been more players, all things being equal by now. I think if access had been open, there's been various reasons why the numbers may not be higher. Some of it may be racism, some of it may be systemic racism. There may be other barriers to financial and the league is far more, appears to be far more welcoming to players and fans in terms of the focus that's been increasing the last number of years. And then minor hockey associations, I would hope both in Canada and the United States, are trying to grow the game as well. Very interesting. I'm curious, Dean, could you tell us about one or two of your favorite cards in this collection? Do any of them have a particular sentimental value or something like that? Yeah, Herb Carnegie is a special card for me because he was one of the greatest black players never played in the NHL. He was, uh, it was alleged that the owner of the Toronto Maple Leafs, Smythe, would have paid $10,000 for anyone who could turn him white in the 1940s. There's a special edition card that was released in the early 2000s of Herb Carnegie. So I, I have a mention and inclusion of him in the card collection. I was also fortunate as a school administrator to meet Herb Carnegie in 2000. I brought him to my school to speak to one of my students. So has a real soft spot for me. And sure. really good news is Herb Carnegie just received, will be inducted into the Hall of Fame as a builder. It's been a number of years, at least 10 years since he's passed away, but the family's really thrilled that he's going to be inducted in the Hall of Fame. Absolutely. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. And uh, the other... Yeah, please. Well, go ahead. Yeah, the other card is Kegney, one of the first black star hockey players and was a very productive scorer with the Buffalo Sabres in the 1980s. Buffalo's only an hour and a half from my, where I grew up in Burlington. So, again, I remember watching Tony on TV. And incidentally, when I was volunteering at a hockey camp that promoted by the Sabres when I was 12 years old, Tony was working as an instructor. So, I got to meet him a long time ago as a young person and trying to reconnect with him as well. So, that's great. So you have a personal connection to both of those cards. That's right. And, and I, must, I must imagine that that's a real part of, the, part of the story for you, right? That you have this personal connection as a player, as a fan. Uh, but then you've met a couple of the pl- players whose cards you have. And I know that your collection has covered a lot of physical ground, too, in terms of its being shown around the country as part of this tour with the NHL. Could you tell the listeners a little bit more about that? Yes, it's been a very gratifying to be part of the experience. The cards have been housed in an NHL Black Hockey History Tour. It's a mm-hmm. mobile truck that moves around and sets up from each of the NHL cities. Throughout the tour, I it was largely in the United States, obviously, most of the teams in the U.S. My daughters and I had set up a website at blackhockeycards.com where we have captured the interviews 
with various players and these people that were capturing the truck story that's rolled into town to town. I know when the article first was written about me in NHL.com, Bernie Saunders was a player who played for Quebec Nordiques in 1979 and 80. He reached out to me and he had recently actually released a book about his experiences in hockey. And I also met Anthony Stewart, who's a former player and current hockey analyst for Sportsman Canada. And I mentioned Val James before. He was at the tourist stop in Toronto, so got to meet him. And it was great to see him. And so the from a distance, I've seen some video coverage. I even saw Anson Carter, who's a player. He used to play for the New York Rangers, one of the teams. And he took, took a selfie of himself because there's a wall of cards. So he took a picture of himself and the cards behind him. So it's kind of neat to see that. Absolutely. Yeah, it sounds very cool. And, and you said it's been traveling all around Canada and the United States. And is it primarily going to cities with professional hockey teams? Is that the idea? Or is it going elsewhere as well? Yeah, the vast majority has been, there's a schedule on NHL.com. It showed the schedule of cities. It's kicked off in Black History Month in February and continued on until April or May. And right now, I think they're doing a few special private visits and showing us at different places. I know they went to a few of the historically Black colleges. I think there was one in Tennessee that visited but, but for the most part, yeah, it's gone from Detroit, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh. It was out in Anaheim for a bit. So it's been at all the different NHL cities. Absolutely. What a great what a great opportunity to learn about the history there. And what you're an educator as well, Dean, as well as a card collector. And so I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about the relationship between hockey and education. And I believe you, you earned a PhD in education as well, right? As a superintendent of schools, does your does the hockey card collection it would seem has educational value, but if it does, what do you make of that value? There's a, ultimately there's a connection with who I am as an educator and the work that I've normally led in, in education. It's been pretty unique because my card collection can be reached by many people across North America or other parts of the world. So ultimately I'm hoping my card collection raises the awareness and encourages future conversations about the importance of diversity, inclusion, and acceptance in the game of hockey at all levels, from minor hockey through the pro levels. And I know there are committed people working in NHL and organizations that are working to break down barriers in hockey and so that anyone can play the game. I know nowadays in Canada, for example, to give you an example, a hockey stick can cost upwards from $200, $300 just, for one, right? hockey, just for one hockey stick. And the hockey skates can be fairly expensive, costs up to $1,000. And registration for some teams is anywhere from $2,500 to $5,000. And then you throw tournaments and those things on top. And it just, it didn't, it didn't seem to be that restrictive, even though I pretty much live in a middle-class community, it was a little bit more accessible when I was younger. So I think the concerns are out there right now in terms of, are there limits to who can access the game? Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm, as I'm listening to you, Dean, I'm thinking about how in the United States, we're seeing similar trends in various sports that require a lot of equipment and expensive costs and a lot of traveling teams are costing parents quite a bit of money. So I'm curious, what are your, what are some ideas that you might have for increasing the number of black uh, hockey players at the youth level? I think you, you can take examples of other sports and look at costs and the expenses, what it's, what it is to play baseball and basketball. I had heard recently there was a reduction and there was a peak number of participation rates for African-American kids in baseball at one point in time and then it had dipped down and I think it's resurging and coming back maybe the access to scholarships at the collegiate level are, are one way to remove access but there, there are so many costs involved when someone's at a young age right now that I think some of the solutions are 
other charities be involved and organizations and corporations who are just trying to maybe chip in and reduce the cost for equipment, reduce the cost for ice time. I think ultimately it's what we want in society if we just want to have the same people only playing the game. I think we miss out on richness and diversity and opportunities that a sport can provide. Sure. The other thing is I recently read a briefing in some of my research in 2018. There's a policy brief calling shifting demographics and hockey's future. It was co-written by Davis and w- William W.H. Frey of the Brookings Institute. Mm-hmm. He mentioned that the United States changing demographics from 2030 will see a net loss of 15 million people who are white, as well as a market gain of 27 million minorities. As the demographics of labor force and population continue to shift, so too does the cultural relevance of activities millennial parents will look to offer their children. The report continues, hockey will need an intentional effort to introduce the value of the game to new parents who may not have may not have had children who played. You can see that strategically, and I think this is why the efforts being made by the NHL and have to continue, even just from a business model to survive. The game has to reach out in terms of the fan base. Not everyone has to play in the NHL, but in terms of the eyes on the sport, just as you probably watch the NFL and baseball, there has to be a broader viewership for the sport to survive. And we didn't talk much about the card collecting end of things. And that was the part of this for me as well, that Upper Deck wrote two articles about me. The first article was, you know, as we've summarized my history of card collecting and and there's not many minority card collectors across Mm -hmm. a number of sports. And you you wonder questions, there's lots of questions that raises why that's the case. But by me putting myself out front and center, again, it's I think it helps lead the way for inclusion acceptance to say that show that lots of minorities can also be in, engaged in these activities. Sure, sure, absolutely. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned that, Dean, and also that the it, I read recently in the New York Times about hockey and some of the troubles that the sport at a national level in Canada has had. And there was one piece that said that some critics of hockey have said that it's, quote, time for Canadians to accept that the sport that has come to define their nation, accurately or not, is ingrained with misogyny, violence, racism, and homophobia. So I'm curious what you make of these trends, because the article had suggested that some of these would-be hockey players were now turning to the more globally-oriented sports like soccer and basketball. And perhaps it's related. I don't know. I'm curious, though, to ask you. Yeah, again, I think it just means that we need to have to rethink, even at the minor hockey levels, how open is the door to inviting people from other communities to, to play this sport? And in the early, probably late 1990s, when I first started teaching, girls hockey was not very big. Then I started mm-hmm. the first girls hockey program at the high school I was teaching at. And exponentially, the growth has really increased like we're 20 years later now. But there was a time where girls were not playing hockey in Canada or United States. But now you look at the number of programs that have boys hockey or men's hockey and women's hockey at the collegiate level. It's great to see. In reference to answering your questions, I think people are just having a real critical eye on how things are being led and done and who's leading and and are there safe spaces for people to speak out? Are there accountabilities set up so that if there is misconduct, there's an easy, transparent way for people to feel safe to share their experiences? Yeah, I'm curious. The article is about sexual assault and violence against young people in hockey. And I know that's not the subject matter that we're talking about today, but have in your experience with hockey in Canada, Dean, have you also seen, you mentioned your work with youth women's hockey, so I understand that, but 
What about the violence and the homophobia? Are those issues that are seem to be creeping up in hockey? And obviously there are in sports down here in the United States. But as I, again, I say, I don't follow hockey too closely. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on those particular issues. I think they've been on our radar for a while. I think that the organization in question, Hockey Canada, is the one that's the review is being done right now. And various people are weighing in on the oversight of Hockey Canada, the responsibilities that coaches have and players have and parents have. So it's it's not my area of expertise in terms of knowing where things will go, but I do know that there's a bit of intersection with a number of things you've talked about, gender issues, racism, homophobia, all those things are areas that the powers to be will have to take a look at to ensure that, again, the spaces are safe for everyone, whether you are a parent whether you're a player, whether you are you whether you are a fan. Absolutely. And you mentioned earlier the importance of having diversity and leadership toward that end, I think would make a lot of sense, right? If there was more of a broad-based leadership structure, then you're probably less likely to have these kinds of things happen. Yeah. I'm really quite curious to learn more about hockey from you, Dean, and, and but not necessarily for the sport itself, because I don't, like I say, I don't follow it. And I've long wondered about the the violence in the game, the fighting and that kind of thing. I played high school football down here, but that that is a fight the whole game, not a game. And then fights periodically where people actually take off their, they start physically fighting it as if they were boxers. So I think both are equally violent probably, but, um, but that's the thing that we get highlights of down here in the United States is if hockey's on TV, we're often seeing the goals or, or the fist fights. So that's my, the extent of my knowledge being a California boy. How have you seen, not necessarily in that, with that respect to that particular issue, but how have you seen hockey changing over the years? Are you seeing the game improving in ways or do you think it's becoming more violent, less violent? I don't know. Those kinds of questions come to mind when I think of hockey. It's always been a physical sport. If you go back to the era when players like Bernie Saunders and Tony McKechnie played, it was really physical. If you look at the statistics for penalty minutes, it'd be very common for someone to have someone on the team that's only job was to fight and come out on the ice. And the minutes for someone like that in a season might be in 450 minutes. So slowly those days have gone. It's it's been a number of years, I think, since that happened. But also when I played rep hockey up until 16, there's the odd skirmish. Junior hockey is was often the next big step for those people that are going on to play NHL and college hockey and university. And actually, college and the university had different rules at the time. Mm-hmm. They had rules where if you were fight, you were suspended for a number of games. Whereas the the other leagues didn't have that. The Ontario Hockey League and those that were junior leagues, there were no there was no restrictions. I see. And again, it's been a number of years since I played that level and I don't have, I have girls, I don't have boys who played the game, but the, the days are long gone of the bench clearing brawls and the multiple fights and most players on a team now, you might be tough, but you also have to be able to play as a fourth line player. You have to be able to contribute and skate really strongly. So, Right. You can't just be the enforcer on the team no. where you're just out there. Right. And- yeah. Yeah, that's quite interesting. And And you'll see that too when you watch the Olympic hockey, which in recent years, it's gone back and forth. Professionals have been allowed to play. So you can see the quality of play. It's really fast. It's wide open. There's absolutely no fighting that I've seen in the Olympics. So I don't know as American viewers, if you do have an opportunity to see, that's probably the fastest and quick face 
hockey that you get to see, but it only comes every four years. Of course, I understand. Yeah, that that does sound much more graceful and about the finesse of the game and the passing, the teamwork and that kind of thing. And I'm curious about something you just said there, Dean, about the junior league hockey's hockey not being quite as um, focused on punishments for fighting. Is part of that... or excuse me, was the opposite. The schools, school-based hockey was punishing the players more. Is that because one was private, one was public well, school, or how does that play in there? Yeah, yeah. like when I first playing competitive hockey, I played high school, which at the time was players who used to play competitive. I think the high school just wanted to have more of a strict policing of, they didn't want things to get out. So as players, you knew that you didn't have to really fear that it was going to be a really overly aggressive experience because those checks and balances were put in play at the same time the junior hockey again was always a stepping stone for the nhl and i think what happened is fighting started to reduce in the nhl then junior hockey married that and they need mm-hmm. less of the players you want to call them goons and ohl because they were less needed in the, in the nhl so there's a bit of a calibration went mm-hmm. on there the canadian hockey league and all the junior leagues changed their rules and uh, they're still fighting in those leagues but it's less of a, there's less demand to have someone that only fights. There's more demand to have someone that is physical, can play 200 feet of ice and do other things on the ice and shoot and pass and, and everything. Because you'll be at a disadvantage if you have that kind of player. Who should... The game is so much faster now too, yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. So if you yeah. have someone that can't be strong out there in the ice, it would mean a goal scored against your team. That makes sense. And I'm also curious about, the violence in hockey vis-a-vis other sports. Down in here in the United States, Dean, we, we've seen a really meteoric rise in the popularity of this ultimate fighting championship, mixed martial arts. And at the same time that's happening, we're also seeing more efforts. I don't know how significant they are. I think you'll have to ask someone else to know for sure. But there are there seems to be at least lip service being paid to the violence in football. And you're getting new helmets technology and you're having independent concussion protocol doctors on the on the sidelines and things. So to me, it seemed it's always seemed quite interesting that at the on the one hand, you have more pop this very violent sport, no holds barred fighting, that's becoming more popular in the United States and getting a lot more airtime. At the same time that the historically violent sport in the United States, football, I should say historically popular and violent sport, because of course there are other violent sports like boxing and things, but those are on the decline a little bit. And so I'm curious, does the MMA capture the attention of Canadians or is the is there some relationship somehow to the decline in violence in hockey to other sports that are popular? The article I read was talking about soccer and basketball becoming more popular among youth in Canada, but maybe there's more to the story that I don't know. I've had friends of mine who's they've chosen for their kids to play non-contact hockey. So they're playing at a competitive level until they're 13, 14, 15. They realize that they're probably not going on to play a junior league. So they, there's actually competitive leagues now that are non-contact hockey, which is a great option for someone who still wants to play. Sure. Because ultimately, I still play in a men's league right now. And once you get to a certain age, there's no more contact in recreational leagues. So if someone wants to keep playing, they're pretty much destined for a non-contact league. Well, yeah, what, what is that, Dean, playing in your non-contact after what I assume is many years of playing in a contact league? Yeah, it's been fantastic. I stopped playing when I was 20 years old and didn't pick it up again until I was 25, 26. And I got into it with a group of teachers who started what's called pickup hockey, and they play once a week and mix up the teams and just a really good exercise and camaraderie. And a few years after that, when I moved back to this region and started teaching around Burlington, we started a pickup hockey 
with a group of guys, some I grew up with and some were brought into the group. And we started this same thing. We, we all pay a couple hundred dollars and uh, we buy reversible jerseys. So we've kept that going now, probably almost 20 years for sure now. And we've had different guys come in and out, but it's always been Tuesday night at nine. So that's the pickup hockey league. And then when we get to the winter, we play in the more competitive league. And that's usually once a week, but that is non-contact. And and there's also another league in Burlington here. It's called the Burlington Old Timers League, which I'm part of as well. And they have leagues for people playing up to 80 years old, actually. It's one of the largest leagues. There's still, people are still competitive, but I think the the guidelines and the leadership of leagues try to keep everything clean. And probably because there is no physical contact, there's hardly ever any skirmishes that break out. That is, that does seem to me to to be a a cause of those fights when somebody gets knocked over from behind. That's right. But I mean, I'm not as familiar. I'm not really a fan. I don't know how that's going. I don't know how it is as a... Spectator sport, I think the uh, the viewership is pretty good when people go out to watch at bars and all that, but I'm not as familiar with people going to as a spectator sport, at least around here. Interesting. But it does seem like these issues of misogyny, violence, homophobia, and racism, it maybe is difficult to determine whether they're becoming less a part of hockey or not. It's hard to measure those things, but it does certainly seem like in Canada, Canadians are grappling with those issues within the sport of hockey more than ever. Would, would that be safe yeah. to say? Yeah. yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're doing the same thing down here with our major sports. And I think it's really important. Um, I think it's a long overdue, frankly. But uh, this has really been really eye-opening for me, Dean. I really appreciate your taking the time to, to meet me today and let me learn it from you about hockey, but also your hockey card collection and the place of, of, of Black players in the NHL. And so I'm curious, I always try to finish these conversations with an opportunity for my guests to speak about their own meaning of sports, so to speak. And I think my favorite part of the story, as we've talked today, is how you've used this collection to raise awareness, the need for diversity, inclusion, and representation. And with that being said, I wonder, what does the power of sport mean to you? The power of sport to me is intersects with education because in the examples that I've given you, I've been trying to share more awareness about the players that are part of this collection. We haven't gotten into a lot of detail about particular stories, but that in itself, I think, helps normalize the experience for Black and minority players. It shouldn't be it shouldn't be a big deal, and fans shouldn't feel uncomfortable if they're going to watch the game, nor should young people shouldn't feel that they, they can't play the game. So I think that's one thing for sure. And we talked about the power of sport in terms of what it gives people. It's given me a lot of lifetime friendships. It's given me an opportunity to exercise various skills, such as teamwork, time management, working towards a goal, discipline, problem solving. You'll be able to get up when you've fallen down and get back up. And then my latest work for this project is very educational because I think the more the more I can get out and people like me can get out to, to share our experiences, normalize again, shine the light on the history of, of Black players. So one thing I forgot to mention as well was as part of the Black Hockey History Tour, there's an exhibit that talks about the Colored Hockey League, which is a league in, in Canada, in Nova Scotia, in three provinces, New Brunswick and PEI. And Blacks could only play in that league because they couldn't play with whites. And so that league is credited for some of the innovations in hockey, such as the goalie being able to go down and stop the puck. So a lot's been written about that league by respected authors, but... It just shows you again that there's a piece of history that people may not be aware of that that's prior to the start of the National Hockey League. 
Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Thank you so much, Dean. I didn't know that myself. And uh, it's just been a pleasure to get to talk to you today, Dean. I really appreciate you taking the time for the show. Thanks. I appreciate uh, you having me on and honored to be on the show Absolutely. and talk with you. Yeah, I look forward to catching up down the road. Okay. Okay, thanks, Dean. Have a good day. Care. All okay, right, bye-bye.